It's good to see you. Go ahead and find your way to a chair. Make yourselves comfortable. I'm a spider killer, just in case you wanted to know. I have to be. <laughs> it's good to see you. My name is Luke. If we've not met, I'd love to meet you after the service. And if you have a Bible or an app or whatever you use to follow along, would love for you to turn to Genesis 20, because that's the passage that's really going to bear up most of the weight for us today. We will look at another key passage, but that's the one I'd love for you to park yourselves in. And while you're turning to Genesis 20, you know, there, every Friday, I'll say it this way, every Friday morning, and if you're a runner, by the way, this is open for you, but every Friday morning at around 7 or 7.30, I meet between one and six or seven guys at IC King Park and we run that thing um, as much as we feel like running it. And it's a, it's a really great trail. When I say trail, I don't mean greenway trail. I mean it's a real single track trail where the, the greenery kind of closes in around you and there's rocks and there's roots and there's just things you have to keep your eye on. It's a very vigorous run. But one thing I've learned after running that trail for years is that if you go in the spring or in the summertime, it is full of spider webs if you're the first one there in the morning. I mean, the, the mountain bikers haven't been there yet to clear it all out for the runners, so all you do is you just stack webs all over you, right? I mean, you'll run, and you can't see it coming, but these, these webs, they'll catch a bird, I think. I mean, some of them, you run right into it, and it just kind of folds around your head and all around your body, and you're digging it in, and then from then on, I mean, what are you thinking about the whole time, right? There's a, sp there's a spider on me, so you're, you're kind of doing this every now and then just because you, you thought you might have thought you might have felt something. It wasn't until maybe the, the 20th time I've had to endure that that Garrett, Garrett Meek taught me, all you have to do is pick up a branch and run with it in front of you. Super simple, right? So you just run with the branch in front of you like you're carrying a torch. But after about a mile, if you stop and you look at that branch, it is full of webs and spiders all over it. It's really spooky. So you throw it down, you get another stick, and you just keep running, right? And so I was thinking about this. After this last Friday, after I'm digging web out of my ear and my beard, and I've got a big bite on the back of my neck now from one that, that I did not quite get, um, I was thinking about a passage that I thought would be very helpful for us today, but I want you to keep that metaphor in your mind a little bit too, right? So in Hebrews 12, and don't flip there, just stay where you're at in Genesis 20, but in Hebrews 12, we see the author of Hebrews saying this, verse 1, therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So for you to know who those witnesses are, you'd want to go backwards one chapter where we see some of the great people of faith, many of them martyred, these people that were working for something that they couldn't even see in front of them quite yet, those who are hailed for their great faith, right? That's the cloud that he's talking about. He says, since we're surrounded by witnesses of that pedigree, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is going to be helpful for us today. It's actually a picture of a runner running without the burden of being overweighed, I guess, having too much weight. If you're a runner in here, you know you'll do anything to shed the pounds and get them off. You'll go from a shoe that's 12 ounces down to a shoe that's 6 ounces. You'll wear gear that is light. You'll want to be light yourself because an unencumbered runner is one that can do great distances with great ease. And that's kind of the picture this is starting to paint. 
But it's talking about our sins and how those cling as weights to us. And maybe the process of taking those clingy sins and laying them aside so that we can actually run unencumbered and not cluttered. Because have you noticed that there are some sins that you don't really carry very far through life, but then there are some sins that, like the spider webs I was mentioning earlier, they just kind of stick to you for the whole journey. It just feels like you can't shake it. It feels like for all the wiping, it's still just hanging on. We call these habitual sins. A lot of old scholars and old writings, they will call it a besetting sin. However you want to label it, it's that sin that keeps popping its head, the one that towers above all the others, the one that brings in a lot of shame afterward, the one that brings in a lot of despondency afterward, and it typically shows up whenever you and I encounter some sort of a pain or a trial. Right? Whenever you and me, we bump into a pain or a tribulation or a trial, it's in us to hunger for an escape or a rescue or a retreat of some kind. This is just the way we were geared. Think about like a tough day at work at the end of that day. Maybe a tough season of marriage. Maybe your kiddos are tough or you're sick or you just feel empty of purpose, alone, depressed. Those things hunger and they cry out for an escape and for a rescuer. And when it finds us, it finds us hungry for that very, very escape. And, and this is the thing. You were actually created to be hungry for that, by the way. You were created to be hungry for that escape. Because you and I, we live in a place that is broken and cracked because of the implosion of mankind. So the edges, the jagged edges of broken creation, they kind of dig in sometimes. And that is meant to draw us to a rescuer or one who provides an escape for us. But we don't do that a lot, especially since the fall. Since we are plunged into sin, we self-medicate. And we will pick up things around us. We'll call them constructs today. So think in the level of construct. Now, construct is something that you construct with, right? Or, or a lot of people will use the word to describe an idea. But we're going to use the word construct to describe just a thing that we might pick up. It could be a, a six-pack of whatever beer. It could be um, sex. It could be food. It could be gaming. Anything you pick up that says, oh, I too can give you escape. I too can give you retreats. I can get you out of the painful existence you're in right now. Because we have sin in us, we reach for these things and we do it effortlessly. We self-medicate. And when we do, conviction comes, does it not? Conviction comes. The thing that says what you've done is wrong. Now, I always feel like whenever I mention the word conviction, I have to tell you that it is not condemnation. I have to draw a distinction between the two. And a lot of that is because we don't know the difference between the two words and we use them interchangeably. Conviction is something very beautiful and it's actually a gift of God to you to lead you to repentance. It's a kindness of God. Conviction is the beautiful Holy Spirit saying what you have done is wrong. Condemnation is where the enemy speaks, not the Holy Spirit, but the enemy speaks and says you are wrong. Like you're totally wrong. Wrong for God. And he doesn't love you. <laughs> He's not excited about you at all. And if you pray, he doesn't hear it. And if you thought you were saved, well, forget that. That's condemnation. They're not the same thing. But whenever we have sinned and have done that thing again that we swore we would never do, we just feel rotten inside. Whether it's by, by path of conviction or by path of condemnation, we say, that's it, never again. I'm never doing that thing again. And what happens is, 
time goes by. And then we forget. We get amnesia. And what felt like so much pain in that one moment, it just kind of drifts off into a distant memory, and the prophet now seems better than the loss. And before you know it, we have circled around, and we are right back where we started, doing something, picking up that clingy, besetting sin, trying to medicate ourselves. Conviction comes, and then we say again, I will never do that again. And then we build fences, and we build walls, we start new rules, we add rules to old rules, we get a, a, some sort of a confessional partner or an accountability partner, we feel rotten. It's a wicked cycle. And what happens is, is we end up living as one running an endurance race, holding a bunch of weight, and it's just cluttering and tangling us up. And besetting sin, the habitual sin, the clingy sin that we're talking about today can really leave a mark on you. It's the mark that shame brings it's the mark that says, are you ever going to beat this? Probably not. It's the, it's the mark that tries to communicate to you that you will struggle with that sin for the rest of your life. And possibly God doesn't love you. Because how could he? Maybe you've lost your salvation. Maybe you were never saved. These are the things we hear. And that leaves a mark. I mean, let me just maybe throw some classic examples out there. I think it makes sense, but just in case it doesn't, let's look at pornography for just a second, because that's a classic example, right? It does promise to provide you an escape. It promises to provide you a retreat. But I'm talking more than just about pornography as the allure of skin, something we see with our eyes. Pornography, if you look at the Greek etymology and the history of the word, it's not just talking about stuff that shows up on a screen or stuff that shows up in an old magazine. What it also describes, even going back to the original word, is anything that is even written, like a description. So anytime you find yourself reading a book or a series of books or watching a movie that even elicits or provokes a desire to be lost in your imagination, swept up in the arms of somebody that you're not married to, Anytime you have these illicit emotional connections, even through reading something, that, friend, is pornography. It's not just I shouldn't be here.com, something dudes struggle with, right? Statistically, men between 18 and 30, right now, as of this year, 8 out of 10. Our demographic, 8 out of 10 dudes are struggling with pornography at least once a month. 8 out of 10. And listen, women, it's going up. It's escalating. That's what's been unique. It's just dumbfounding researchers how many women are being trapped into that vicious cycle that brings shame, the one that we're talking about today. The one that we're talking about today. Look at gluttony. Gluttony is another escape that leaves a mark on us. And I'm not saying food either, by the way. That's typically what we think, though, right? Whenever someone says gluttony, we think food. It could be media, it could be gaming. It could be going to the gym. It could be anything that is good that we take and say, this is my everything, my ultimate, my escape. This is where I find my peace, my sanctuary, my place, and we abuse it. What about drugs? Any drug, any drug at all. I mean, drugs are only addicting because it promises you that it can deliver you out of this maddening brokenness that we call humanity. Everything's broken. And it says, I can get you out. I can deliver you out. I say these things leave a mark because so much shame comes afterward and the enemy does his absolute best to make sure and convince you that you were not loved anymore after you did that thing yet again, after you said you'd never do it again, after you promised you'd never do it again. 
ever, ever, triple mean it. He wants you to think that God, God cannot find you in that place of sin. That you finally, finally, you have taken your sin to such a level that grace has to stop. Like there's some line in the sand where grace comes and says, I can't go any further than this. I mean, I'd had you up until now, but you just keep sinning and sinning and sinning. And this sin is so gross, I just can't follow you. The enemy also loves it whenever you double down and get super duper serious this time and start vowing and repeat vows because the enemy loves the long game. Loves the long game as we're going to find out. So today's passage, it really displays this predicament well. It's one of my favorites in the Old Testament, right? Because it shows Abraham doing something, but it shows him hitting the same pothole over and over and over again. And it just makes me feel a little bit more normal, okay? So let's look in Genesis 20. If you have your Bibles, look in Genesis 20, and we're just going to start off in the very first verse. I'm going to only walk a couple verses at a time just to maybe unpack some of this. Verse 1 of chapter 20, this is the word of the Lord for us today. It says, from there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of, his, of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. We just pause for a second. Deja vu is French for already seen. This has already happened. This happened in Genesis 12. Eight chapters earlier, he did the same stupid thing. Goes into Pharaoh. All the men think that Sarah's beautiful. He's like, well, look, I'm not married to her. It's just my sister, you know, technically. I mean, she's my sister. So she gets brought into his harem. God has to intervene. It doesn't get much further down the road, and he does the exact same thing again. After you know, you know in chapter 12, after Pharaoh kicked them out of the land, you know that he thought to himself, my marriage is not on a great footing right now because I just did what I did, which was pretty boneheaded, and I'm being kicked out of a land, so here we are on the move again. I will never do that again. Dumb, dumb. I'll never do that again. And here we find him eight chapters later doing the exact same thing, deja vu. What's interesting to me is Abraham has some incredible trust in some areas. Like when we first started this look at the life of Abraham this summer, we saw God say things like, listen, get up, get up, leave your hometown, your father's house, your city, your wealth, your future, and just go. Go to a place you don't even know yet. And Abraham's like, sure, got it. Let's circle up the wagons. We're leaving in the morning. Amazing trust. And in a couple weeks, we're going to see him about to plunge his knife into his own son because he trusts that God might raise him from the dead. Isn't this interesting? Isn't it interesting how he doesn't struggle with some of these things, yet every time he moves to a new land, he offers up his own wife to save his own tail? <laughs> some things just aren't a struggle for Abraham, and some things are. Is that not a true principle for you in your life? I mean, some things that just ruin other people, they're just not much of a temptation for me. You could put a big five-gallon bucket of cocaine up here. I'm not really going to be tempted to go sticking my head in it or something like that. Or, or, you know, you'll hear, maybe you're like me, maybe you'll hear about a story of how a family lost everything because of gambling, right? This guy sells the minivan, bets it all on the Yankees, loses his money, you know, and then he bets his, his uh, retirement, loses all of that. Every time I read a story like that, I think, that's just stupid. Who does that? What kind of person is even tempted to bet their everything, their whole future, on a game? I mean, I'll put 20 bucks down here and there whenever it's my team playing, and it just kind of brings a lot of fun to it. 
It's just a fun thing, but I would never like lose my kid's college fund over it. Who does that? It's not a struggle for me. But now if you want to talk about overworking, oh, I'm your man. I'm your man there. That's a super big temptation for me to work behind my work, to clock out at the end of the day, but to kind of keep going. You know what I'm saying? So that I can make sure that I am extra safe, so that I can make sure that things extra get done and I have my control. And I've overworking's easy for me, but some of you are probably listening to me say something like that and thinking, who does that? I mean, once you clock out, you're done, right? I mean, who wants to work when you're done working? That's when you don't work, right? It's not tempting for you. It's a true principle we're finding. All right, let's jump back in, verse three. I don't wanna get too lost in that. Verse three, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. That's the first time you see the word prophet in the Bible too, by the way. So that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Okay, just the big points. Abimelech is appealing to God after God shows up in a dream. And God instructs Abimelech on what to do. Next morning, Abimelech has a staff meeting, tells everybody what's going on, schedules a little meeting with Abraham. They have it out a little bit back and forth, and we're about to look at that. But the key statement I want you to capture in this is where Abimelech tells Abraham, you have done to me things that ought not to be done. It's interesting how the unrighteous is rebuking the righteous. Interesting. In fact, if you had no idea who these two dudes were, you're not familiar with the Bible at all, never read Genesis, and you walk up and just read today's passage, you would walk away from it feeling like Abimelech is the man of God, and Abraham's a troll out of the whole thing. And this happens all the time today as well, right? I mean, listen, if you hear the gnashing of teeth coming from across the fruited plains of Knoxville, it is me listening to yet another news report of a moronic thing said by some Christian or some pastor only for the world to say, that is wrong and you shouldn't even be doing that. Too often I'm finding the world speaking to the church saying things that are quite true. Like the church is archaic. The church is stingy. The church is racist. The church is this. And sometimes I just want to raise my hand and say, I kind of agree. I think we can be. It's a struggle. So when the world says to God's people, you have done things to me that ought not to be done, it means that our hypocrisy has damaged our witness. Our salt has lost its saltiness. And that's what's happening in this passage. So let's jump back in. Verse 
We'll go verse uh, 10. We'll pick it up there. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Okay, you're picking up on a very, very big trend here, his clingy sin, his habitual sin has got him doing two things. It's got him saying, virtually, this is not my fault. That's what he's getting to. This city, King Abimelech, when I walked in, it's kind of a skeezy place. People don't really have a moral compass here. So I just knew if I were to say that Sarah was my wife, they'd probably kill me. What he's really saying to the king of that town is you're doing a bad job. This place is a real sketchy place, and it's kind of on your shoulders because you're running this sketchy place, right? Your fault, not my fault, not it. And then when he's done posting blame somewhere else, he pulls out the loophole card, technically, it's not really a sin. I mean, technically, she's my sister. I mean, not really, but kind of. I mean, right now, especially, she's my sister, right? Because it could affect me greatly. Sounds like Adam to me. Doesn't this sound like Adam? Think all the way back to the garden, and you'll find why this is genetically inside of Abraham. Because doesn't Adam himself say, Lord God, listen, it, it's not me. It's, it's her. She did this to me. Actually, check that. It's not her. It's your fault because you gave her to me. You did this to me. It's not me. I didn't do it. Take it up with her. Take it up with yourself. That's why we're seeing this here is because we saw it all the way back into the garden, and that's why you and I do it today. We do the same thing. We relocate blame from our shoulders to somebody else's shoulders, and we reason that the sin we're in isn't even sin. Some loophole, some technicality, some way we can reason it away. Sin's not really sin. Not my fault, not my problem, right? That's what we're catching so far. So verse 14, we're going to take it all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 18. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Okay, here's what's interesting in this passage. You want to grab this. A thousand pieces of silver. Back then, historically, the most you were allowed to pay, the cap on what you were allowed to pay for a dowry, for a wife, was 50 pieces. He's paying the price for 20 right here. He's going over and above. He's placing himself above reproof. He's being generous He's being integrous. He's acting righteously. And then he's asking Abraham to pray for him. Well, that just feels backwards. It feels like God would say, and hey, listen, Abimelech, you need to get, you need to get up there and just pray over Abraham because that brother's in trouble. You know what I'm saying? He keeps doing the same stupid thing. Maybe you could help him a little bit. That's what I would have expected. But he says, Abraham's my man. He's a prophet. Talk to him. 
how humiliating do you think that must have been for Abraham to pray for Abimelech? I can see that being a little awkward. Okay, so this is our text. And you and I, we have our version of a sin that clings to us and is hard to lay aside. We can't seem to put it down. It's habitual, it's besetting, it's the one that stands way tall above all the others, bringing shame, bringing frustration, bringing despondency. It kind of looks like this. I'll put a little thing up on the screen if we can. It starts off with pain. Pain comes, right? And that could be anything from just a broken day to a broken marriage to a broken body. Then we fear God's absence. And we do that because we reason with ourselves. See, in this passage, it said that Abraham reasoned with himself, which is your first big dumb move, right? He just thought in his own head instead of bringing other people in, right? That's community, another, another sermon. We fear God's absence. God can't help me. He's not as good as this thing, this construct, this piece of creation that I could use. So we reason our own rescue. We become our own God. We could save ourselves. I don't need God. I could be a God. But then conviction comes, and we say to ourselves, I will never do that again, and I mean it this time. I will never do it again. But then amnesia comes, because three days go by, three weeks go by, and all of a sudden that pain comes back, and we forget how much the sting stung. And then we repeat the cycle. That's what it looks like to hit a pothole over and over again. And when we are trapped in this cycle, temptations do come. And the temptations for you and me are to relocate blame to somebody else and to find technicalities and loopholes, just like Abraham. And then just like Abraham, we figure out that our sin affects other people. It hurts other people. I mean, did you catch that he, he talked to his own wife about sinning with him? He manipulated her at first because you could see him saying, if you love me, hey, if you really love me and you want me to win in life, you'll do this thing for me. And this thing is a pretty ugly thing. His sin is affecting her, the marriage, Abimelech's court. I think this is important for you and me to see because whenever we think of our own sins, we think of them as small and insignificant, maybe private, and we think that they have no ripples, but they do, and they affect everybody around us. Ask Isaac. It's going to be Abraham's son. Ask Isaac how those ripples go because he's about to do the same dumb thing with his wife in the next generation. He's going to give his wife away too. Ask Jonah. Is Jonah sinned in his ship where a whole storm was about to wipe out the whole ship? Ask Achan who carried a sin forward thinking that there would be no ripples and the whole nation lost in battle, which means people died. Ask David who brought sorrow to his whole family. Your sin has repercussions, not just your private conscience. Your sin has repercussions. And we also see that it does ding our witness because the world will catch it every single time. This thing you're doing, it's just not right, the world says. So how can we stop this shame-filled, habitual sin that clings to you and me so easily, so difficult for us to pick up and put aside and keep moving on? I think what you and I need to do and what we have to carry out of this room is realize that our rescue can never be a part of creation that's broken that we use for ourselves. Our rescue is actually a person. Our rescue is actually a person. He's a hero. He's our king. He's our general. He's our friend. 
He's our lover. He's our rescuer. Let me put it into perspective. You have a hard day at work. A hard day (laughs) ensconced in a hard season. In fact, your whole job stinks. And you wonder if it's the right job for you. Every day that goes by, you wonder, am I spinning my wheels? Should I be doing something else? I really hate this job. I hate everything about it. You wake up in the morning, you don't even want to go. Big, long, stupid day at work. You get home. You're tired. That's a certain kind of pain, is it not? That's a certain kind of tribulation, and it begs for an escape. Oh, it begs, doesn't it? It begs for an escape. Now, listen, this is the beautiful part. That is meant to draw you into worship. The, those, the edges of creation that just hurt and grind on you like sandpaper, it's meant to cause you and spur you to look for the rescuer. But what we do, because we've imploded so deeply as mankind, is it looks a little bit more like a half gallon of ice cream, whatever cheap beer we could pick up when it's on sale, while we binge watch our way through whatever's on Netflix, or we game our way into the wee hours of the morning, because at least when I'm loopy and I'm watching a show or I'm playing a game, at least I can be a hero. Because if I'm watching someone else be a hero, it makes me feel like I'm not such a loser. In my life, as hard as it is, it's good just to see somebody else win, even if it's an avatar in a game. That's what it looks like. Or a hard marriage. You wonder in your hard marriage if maybe it's just a hard season or maybe it's the new normal. And because you don't know, that's where you're freaked out a little bit. But it's just not what you thought it would be, right? I mean, maybe the intimacy has totally leaked out Your connection to your spouse is totally deflated. You can't even communicate. Those are tough. Listen, that's a pain. That's a special kind of pain. And it, too, begs for an escape. It begs for a release. And it is meant to draw you to the rescuer. It is meant to draw you to an ultimate groom who understands, understands what marital discord can kind of look like sometimes because of his bride. You and me, the church. But what happens often is we manufacture our own escape and we become a God providing our own rescue. And that could look, it could look like a lot of things, but we've already brought pornography, not to kick on the same pinata over and over again, but it can look like that. A book, a picture, a movie, anything that promotes an illicit emotional connection or an illicit romance, using your imagination to escape into another's arms. That is pornography. And sometimes it promises that it can just all the time, it promises that it can release. Because working with your spouse is just so hard, but that smiling face on a screen doesn't ask you to do any work. Working with your wife or your husband, communicating is just so hard, but if I pick up this book, I could just read and it just gets swept away in it. Wishing my life was like that. Maybe it's just a hard life. <laughs> Maybe we just make it even broader and zoom out. Maybe your life just stinks. Maybe you've been abused. You've got a lot of baggage. The baggage in your life makes Tyson McGee's luggage claim look like a joke. I mean, it's just bag after bag after bag, just bad story after bad story, stories that just don't have a good ending, and you just don't ever see that happening. That is a special kind of pain, and it begs for a release. It begs for an escape. And I think it is meant for you and me to recognize as broken as creation is, there is a creator rescuer who has come to reverse everything. That pain that you feel, 
it will not just go away. It will be reversed. Understand that that's what it means. That's what it means after the end of all ends. It's not just that the ugly things stop. It's that the ugly things are reversed. And it is meant to draw us there. But very often, what will it drive us to? It will drive us to drugs, opioids, meth. Opioids is the big one. But listen, LSD has increased in Knox County. LSD has gone up 50% in the last two years. All the way back from the 90s when everybody was doing LSD. It's actually popular again. And you don't have to be hooked on some hard substance for this to be true for you. Because if you get home at the end of a day of your very difficult life and you're having a fourth or a fifth glass of whatever Trader Joe's wine or whatever society says is tolerable and you can get with just a a driver's license and, and, and $5, if you're getting all the way there and you're getting slap happy and fun just because your life stinks, you're doing the same thing. You're a God creating your own escape, putting your own ladder together so you can climb out of your miserable life. You're abusing alcohol, too. That's a different sermon, but that's total abuse. And I can already hear the skepticism in your brain. But Luke, Jesus doesn't seem like a better rescuer than ice cream or meth or models on a screen or a romance novel. How on earth does Jesus bring the same escape? He doesn't. He doesn't bring the same escape. He brings something very different. He is a rescuer bringing us to a different place. If you hear anything today, hear this. Your joy can only be complete in him. Your joy can only, only be complete in him. What you're looking for can only be satisfied in him. Only. Every construct you pick up, every person you use, everything you use to escape, it's a counterfeit and a ripoff. That's all it's able to do is prop you up and make you a God who can save yourself. You see, in this passage, Abraham is actually not a better, or forgive me, let me say it a different way. In this passage, Jesus is not just a better Abraham, he's an anti-Abraham. Oftentimes in in the Old Testament, very often, over 300 times, Jesus will be the better rendition or the better focus of something that we see, like he's the better lamb, he's the better bread from heaven. We see that all the time, even with people. Last week, we looked at how he was the better Abraham. But sometimes Jesus is the anti-type of somebody who is in the Old Testament, right? So, like, for instance, think Samson, right? Died with his arms outstretched, killing more in his death than ever he did in his life. That's meant to point to Jesus, who died with his arms outstretched and actually saved more in his death than he ever did in his life. So Jesus is actually the anti-Samson, the best judge of all, right? We see the same thing here with Abraham. Because one thing we don't catch Jesus doing on the cross is relocating blame to other people. He actually takes the blame that is rightly due for you and me, and he places it on his own shoulders. And we also don't see him minimizing sin We don't see him taking sin and kind of finding loopholes and technicalities. What he does is he owns it. Not just any sin, your sin. Even the sin you're not owning right now as you sit there in the chair. (laughs) That's how good he is. He is our sin eater. He is our blame taker. And he is much more valuable than 1,000 pieces of silver. Even though we are a worse bride. So what I'm doing is I'm appealing to those of you who find yourself failing and struggling to lay aside a besetting sin. You're struggling. And my appeal to you is to really pay attention to how you engage pain. 
Because whenever you were caught and you're entrapped in that cycle and you catch yourself saying, I'll never do it again, yet you kept doing it again, and you, I'll never do it again, I really mean it, but you keep doing it, it's very easy for us to post blame somewhere else and point the finger. It's my parents' fault. That's why I'm doing this. It's my lack of money. It's society. It's culture. It's my kids. It's my job. It's my marriage. Always pointing the finger, never owning. Always doing this. Hitting pothole after pothole, and it's never your fault. And when there's no one left to blame, you just find reasons to allow the sin. Technicalities and loopholes. Actually, technically, it's not really a sin. Technically, and even if it is a sin, it's not like a big hairy sin. It's like a little tiny one that I think Jesus is probably okay with because it stays up in my conscience or in my imagination. It doesn't ever even hurt anybody. Listen, that sin you're protecting, it's been paid for. And you don't, you don't have to be enslaved to it anymore. You could drop it right off at the foot of the cross where our sin eater hangs and has died, has not minimized sin, but has owned it for your benefit, for your benefit at his cost. That is gospel freedom for us. That is gospel freedom for you and me. So I don't have much longer, I just have a few minutes left, but in this time I wanna show you how the gospel can actually speak through this passage in Genesis to how you and I can actually lay aside these sins that are clingy and besetting. And one way is to just remind you that whenever you make decisions in a moment of pain or trial, you will follow one of two grids, one rail or another rail. One will be out of fear and another will be making decisions based out of faith. That's the only two options you have, right? Fear that God will not be there for you. Fear that he is not as good as he says he is, but this thing is, this person is, this episode is, this drug is, this whatever is, right? Or faith that he actually is as good as he says he is. And he is my rescuer. Never make a decision based out of fear. That's something my old pastor used to tell me all the time. Luke, you will make big decisions your whole life. You'll be making these huge, hairy decisions. If you ever get to where you have a hard time making a decision whether to go right or left, just know this. Never make a decision based out of fear. There'll always be stupid decisions. They'll be the easiest decisions, but they'll be the dumbest ones. But can I just amp it up a little bit? I don't think it's the big decisions. I think it's how you and I handle the micro decisions, the small ones, the seemingly insignificant ones, the glance, the re-glance when you shouldn't be looking at whatever it is, the third or fourth or fifth glass, the fifth episode, the imagining, the book, the whatever it is. That thing that you say to yourself, it's such a small thing, it cannot be a habit, it can't hurt anybody, it's just a thing, I'm just going to do it. These, I think, are the decisions, the micro ones that shape our future. Nobody goes from total trust to total failure in one swooping step. It's a thousand little ones, a thousand little ones. And that's because the enemy, as I said, he enjoys the long game. He's patient. His, his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy you. It's the small ones, collecting, dust, turning into larger ones. And I will also say when it comes to how we engage this cycle that I'm talking about, when we do fail, don't just confess it or admit it. Judge it as sin. Judge it as sin. 
I think what happens is, is whenever we have besetting sins or habitual sins, just to, just to say the words out of our mouth to somebody, just to struggle with something for years on end and hit the same stupid pothole, to actually say it out loud to somebody, it feels so liberating, doesn't it? For those of you who have done it, it feels liberating because you've taken something that was just entrenched in darkness and you've thrown light on it and you feel the liberation and the freedom that comes with it. But we actually make that the win. That's not the win. It's a big step and you're courageous for doing it. and You're being obedient for doing it. But the win is not just saying, I struggle with this. There you have it. It's to say, and that is sin and I am guilty. That's owning it. Christians are really getting good at confessing, real cruddy at owning and judging things as sin. And what it's starting to turn into over time that I've seen is when people confess something, but it's not really a sin, it's a weakness. Something that they're the victim of, right? And that's just putting blame somewhere else. The famed addictive personality. It's in my genetics. I just have it. Come on now. Listen. We are all, uh, we're, we're all addicts. We're all addicted to something different. Everyone in this room has an addictive personality. Congratulations, you can thank Adam for that. We're all addicts. Of course you have an addictive personality. Who doesn't have that? It's the way I was raised, Luke. It's the setting I'm in. Just stop it. Just stop it. Judge it for what it is. It's a sin. You were doing it. It's a sin against God, and you were doing it. This is the hard work of laying aside a weakness. Running the race is difficult. What I'm talking about now is very difficult. But when you find your joy in the rescuer, it's possible. It's possible. And when you do get to the place where you say to yourself, I will never do that again, you will be tempted to feel shame. Why? Because you've said that phrase a million times, haven't you? I'll never do it again. Can't you just hear the enemy in your ear whenever you say that? Him going, oh, okay, yeah, okay, remix it. I mean, you're going to have to like add a rule or say it a little differently so you feel it this time. But I mean, you'll never do it again. You always say that. Don't you feel the shame come in? That will be the temptation. Remember, Christian, shame is dead. Shame is dead. There's no room for shame in the Christian life. It's dead. It's gone. Let it lead you to worship instead. Because whenever we say, I will never do that again, Jesus says, I've died on the cross and I'll never have to do that again. Death is done. Shame is dead. It's done. And God has made it possible for us to never do something again by his Holy Spirit. But if you do, if you do do that thing again for the 9,823rd time, if you do it again, no, you have not outpaced grace. God's gift and favor to you, totally despite you, you have not outrun it. You can't sin that much, Christian. You can't outrun grace. You've got to know that. And before I finish, just a quick caution. As we sing and the service will end, we will re-enter the mission field of Knoxville. You will need to know that the world will always notice your hypocrisy. We'll always see it. Your habitual, besetting, clingy sin, it affects everybody around you. Listen, this city's full of Abimelechs. Got burned. Burned by Sunday school teacher or the televangelist or their neighbor whose car's always gone on Sunday morning but acts like a total donkey all week, right? Or that plumber that had the Christian fish on the side of the van but stiffed them or whatever. I mean, there's so many, so many opportunities for the Abimelechs of Knoxville to say, what you're doing shouldn't be done. 
What you're doing is wrong, and it shouldn't even be done. So many people don't think that your small micro decisions go unnoticed. They don't. They don't. They didn't for Abraham either. We can see that here. They hurt those around us. And this is what's hard for you and me to believe. It really is difficult to convince somebody that that thing they do in private can actually have effects in the public. Very difficult. Pornography, gluttony, media addiction, drunkenness. But friend, that's stealing. It's robbing things. It's robbing intimacy from your spouse. It's destroying expectations if you're single for what marriage should look like. It objectifies people. Steals time, breeds a worldview that's different than the one that the Bible lays down. It destroys your witness, and then shame comes. It's really hard to be a missionary when you feel the whole time that God might not love you anymore because you keep doing the thing that you keep saying you're not going to do. It steals. Oh, it has an effect. It has an effect. Go ahead and stand with me. I need to finish this. I've gone a little longer. But I do want to finish with the best news in this passage. The best, this is my favorite part of the whole passage. It's a great way to sign off. Even when we fail, even when we fail, we see in this passage that Abraham remains God's man. He doesn't stop being God's man. Did you pick up on that? Go and speak to my prophet. He will pray for you. I wouldn't say, if I was God, I would have been like, you're going to have to find somebody else to pray for you. Abraham's out. He's sitting on the bench. I think I've had all I can have with him. We're going to have to find another man of God. But he says he is the man of God. Your repeat failures only provoke repeat bouts of grace, as we've seen so clearly. And when we take the bread and when we take the wine today, for those of you who are in God's church, part of his people, when we take communion... Let it be in celebration of the reversal where Jesus took your blame and took your shame and brought it on himself so that you could have freedom and that you could have peace. And celebrate the fact that he's better. The bride price he paid for us as his church is more valuable than the thousand pieces of silver paid as a bride price for Sarah. And on the cross, Jesus says, I will never have to do this again. Death is finished Sin is destroyed. Our work is finished. Rest has come. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your goodness to me and to the people of this church. I thank you for your goodness to your church, even internationally. Everyone on this planet that calls himself a brother or a sister of Jesus, a child of the King. Lord, because what you've done in this message goes above and beyond what we would expect. I would expect that after, we, we only have so many failures in us, and we don't know what that number is, but once we hit that number, you're done with us. You leave us in the tracks. I mean, Father, that's what we do to people. That's what I do to people. Oh, that guy, he's on his last strike. But Father, we keep hitting that last strike, and you keep meeting us with grace. And Father, I know that whenever pain comes to us and whenever trial comes to us, it is to provoke us to worship and to find a peace in you to say, Lord, I don't know how you're better than food. I don't know how you're better than women. I don't know how you're better than all of these things that I chase, but I trust that you are and I pray that you meet me now. I trust that you are. Lord, that's how we join a cloud of witnesses. Lord, we love you so much and we're so thankful for what you're doing in our midst. So thankful for what you're doing in this city. Help us be good missionaries. 
Help us be honest missionaries. And even in this time of worship, as we sing the words up on the screen and as we pray and as we take communion with our friends around us, Lord, that we would do so in remembrance of the huge moment where you were not just a better Abraham, but you were opposite Abraham. Because you took my blame and you called sin, sin. You were incredible. You were fascinating. You were loving and you were good. And it's in your name that we all pray and that we all celebrate. Amen.